Hello and welcome to Doctor Informed, brought to you by the BMJ, made in collaboration with this institute and sponsored by Medical Protection. Doctor Informed aims to take you beyond medical knowledge. We're talking about all those things that you need to be a good doctor, but which don't involve medicine. I'm Clara Monroe, I'm a General Surgical Registrar in the northeast of England and I work as a clinical editor at the BMJ. So this episode is an episode I've been really excited to record for quite a while um, because we're going to be talking about how to make mistakes better and that might seem paradoxical but actually I think it's something that we're really really bad at at as doctors. I think there's a legal side to this but I also think that there's a more feelings and philosophical side to this that we don't often explore. I'm joined today by two guests, Susanna Stamford, who was also on our last podcast, and Anthea Martin, who works with MPS and gives advice to doctors about lots of medical legal things. Joining me to reflect on what they say, I have the absolute pleasure to have with me my friend and colleague Aisha Ashmore. Aisha, you've been on a couple of these pods before, but do you want to start by introducing yourself? Yeah, thanks, Clara. So hi, everyone. My name's Aisha Ashmore. I'm an obs and gynae trainee in the East Midlands, and I was a fellow with Clara on the National Medical Directors Clinical Fellow Scheme last year. Thank you so much for joining me again, um, especially ahead of your exciting roller disco experience this evening. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm going to jump straight in, and I know that we've talked about making mistakes before, but How does the thought or the worry about making mistakes play into your practice daily? Oh, goodness. Well, (laughs) obs and gynae is um, well known as one of the most litigious specialties, isn't it? (laughs) So mistakes are really quite in the forefront of my mind. And I guess that's been amplified by some some of the TV programmes on the BBC at the moment. And and I'm sure everyone knows what I'm talking about with This Is Gonna Hurt. Um, But... I guess, you know, no one really realises that they're they're going to make a mistake and um, doctors are always trained to, you know, always have the answers, always know what they're doing, how to escalate, what the, what the right course of action to take is. But we don't really often get taught about mm. uncertainty and risk and communicating that risk. And I think that those are the areas where mistakes Mm. tend to happen um, most commonly, as well as all of the kind of, you know, the mistakes which happen because you're exhausted and tired. And again, that's an area that we never really learn about or experience as often when you come through medical school. But then um, practically, you know, you get thrown into this environment of, of working in a busy hospital and then, it, it's the first time that you make a mistake, which always stays with you. Well, yeah. it did for me at least. And then, and then it's always on the forefront of your mind, really. Uh, and I, I've got lots of examples when that's happened, and I'm sure, sure, most mm. other doctors do as well. I'm really glad that you brought up um, programs on the BBC at the moment, um, because I think uh, this is going to hurt the BBC drama adaptation of the book by Adam Kay. I think has really. Um, ignited a lot of a lot of thinking and a lot of debate amongst doctors and patients and members of the general public who might have never been patients um and I think one of the things that and there's lots of things to talk about but I think one of the things that I was thinking about particularly in the context of this episode um 
is without giving too much plot away um spoiler alert anyone um the mistake that um that adam makes at the end of the first episode and the way that he reacts to that felt so um i don't know really hit home for me um, because that's exactly the you mentioned the first time you made a mistake. The first time I made a mistake, my reaction was to become super defensive, over investigate everything. Mm. And I wondered if that's something that you experience, and if it's something that we can prepare people better for. Yeah, I mean, I think the way that mistake is defined is really interesting, you know, because like, so before we did this episode, I did a little bit of prep, (laughs) as you do. And I looked up what the actual definition of a mistake was. And Google says that mistake is an act or judgment that is misguided or wrong. Mm. And I was thinking about, you know, when we when we do start to practice defensively, um, following a mistake, and actually, how 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 are we actually defining a mistake? For example, like you're a general surgical training, Clara, so this must happen to you all the time. But when you get that right iliac fossil pain come in and one time you, you mm. miss an appendicitis and um and then suddenly you start over investigating and then every right iliac fossil pain ends up having a CT scan. Like how how do we, you know, at at the moment we define the mistake as missing the appendicitis, but actually is the mistake actually irradiating yeah. vast swathes of the population? And it, it's kind of that, how, you know, what's actually a mistake? And actually, are the is one simple mistake perpetuating more mistakes in a different way in the future? So I think that was a really, you know, I don't know, I, it made me really think about how I think about mistakes. I'm really glad you have segued so nicely um, into talking about um, thinking about how we make mistakes and framing how we make mistakes. And what what do we define as a mistake? Is it our reaction to something that we did that, you know, might have been within completely legitimate and normal practice, um, but didn't work out the way we expected? Um, And we frame that as failure, I think, a lot in medicine. Um, And I think that this is a good time to bring in my interview with Susanna Stamford, who I've interviewed before, and it's a real pleasure to talk to. So we'll go into my interview with Susanna Stamford, but that'll be coming up after our sponsor. You're dedicated to taking care of others, but in these uncertain times, it's never been more important to take care of yourself. So, who's looking out for you? For our members, the answer is medical protection. The demands placed on doctors and medical professionals have never been greater. To help our members take positive steps to better mental well-being, we've partnered with ICAS International to provide a well-being service. This includes confidential one-to-one counselling, a well-being app, podcasts, webinars and more. We're also here to advance your skills and knowledge and reduce your professional risk. Through our risk prevention tools and techniques, we can help stop problems arising. You can access a wide range of online courses, seminars, podcasts, workshops and other CPD accredited programmes. Plus, at the heart of your membership is our 24-7 medico-legal advice line, which you can call as many times as you like without it affecting what you pay for protection. If you're a consultant solely working in the NHS, that price is just £549. 
isn't it time for you to get protected and practice with confidence? Join today at medicalprotection.org UK. And back to Susanna. So I'm uh, Susanna Stanford. In 2010, I experienced, uh, I had experienced as a patient having a C-section for my second son. Uh, the spinal block failed and it wasn't handled brilliantly at the time by the anaesthetist and the trust. So I have that experience of, of mistakes and the, and the aftermath. Um, and I became really interested in working to achieve learning and what gets in the way of that. And, and ultimately, why clinicians find it so hard in the aftermath of harm as well. Can you tell me a little bit about the work that you've been doing about that? Yeah, so this, so, so personally, it actually comes out of the fact that um, in, in my other life, I've worked in schools. Um, I was working in quite a high performing school with quite a number of individuals going off to read medicine. And I happened to be working on their university's application um, process. And they were good young people. And they were going in with full of all the right motivations and, you know, really impressive people going into medicine. And you think, this is brilliant. And then you think, what on earth is going to happen to them when something goes wrong? Mm. And they're particularly, because as I've mentioned, quite a high performing space, um, and obviously medical schools go out of their way to, to recruit high-performing individuals. And, and you kind of look at them and you think, you might never have got anything wrong in your life. You might never, you know, you might have no experience of this at all. So there can be quite a lot of pressure to become, you know, to be delivering perfect. And medicine is a really unkind environment for perfectionists um, because let's face it, it it's not always about the right answer very often it's about the least worst answer and so therefore it's inevitable that they're going to be challenged by it and what happens then so that's what kind of got me really thinking about it um, in terms of my more recent work on this last year I, I made a a film called Managing Adverse Events, where uh, with, with the utterly brilliant Sarah Seddon, who is uh, the bravest person I know. And, and we just thought that there was a piece to be done around trying to explain to people that actually when something goes wrong, what everybody wants is the same thing. You know, they want learning. They, they, they don't want ongoing harm. They want to be treated with respect and, and humanity. And it is our shared humanity that should be bringing us all together as opposed to a system which tends to pitch one against the other, which is really unhealthy and it doesn't do anyone any favours. Um, but the, at the real root of this is simply being able to acknowledge our imperfection, being able to anticipate that things aren't going to go right. So what are you going to do? How are you going to respond? To have actually thought it through before it happens, because when it happens, you're, you know, 
rabbit in the headlights moment, you, you know, like you, you've got to have thought about it ahead rather than expecting that it's all going to be fine and then having an absolute shocker. I think there's a huge amount there about self-reflection, which we do in a really false way sometimes. You know, I, God, I've written so much absolute dross on my portfolio about things that I've reflected on that, you know, I've not really reflected on it. But I think, I think that's incredible that, you know, you're able just to sit down and say, you need to acknowledge your imperfections, especially with an, you know, a group of people who are super high performing, super perfectionist, you know, really, really bad at making mistakes. And I, I remember, and I'm sure every clinician will remember their first mistake. Um, luckily, mine was small, but that's luck. That's complete luck that it was small. And it was something that I was relatively well supported over. Um, but I beat myself up about it for weeks. And nobody said, um, I was just totally unprepared. I was totally unprepared for the fact that I would make a mistake at some point. And it felt like a failure. Um, so, yeah, yeah, it was... <laughs> I think for somebody who went into that job as, you know... I, I, it sounds crass when I say it, but, you know, I wanted to make people better. That's mostly why doctors go into things. You know, it's not... There's not most doctors that make mistakes don't go into it thinking, oh, I'm going to go to work today, I'm going to eat a really good breakfast and I'm going to make a huge mistake that will, like, ruin somebody's life because... But that's exactly it. And so for me, any conversation on patient safety has to start with the acknowledgement that most harm is not intended. Mm. Right? It's, it, you, know, you need to start with that. And if you can start with that... And, and by the way, don't forget that there's been some quite good research on, on how anxiety completely um, wipes compassion. Okay, mm. But that's not just your compassion towards somebody else, but it's also your compassion towards yourself. Mm. So in that moment, you can become, you know, really, really hard on yourself. Um, Professor Suzette Woodward, who's utterly brilliant, you know, she, she talks about the three Ps. So for her, this is personalization. It's, it's all my fault. Why did I do it? Pervasiveness. This is going to wreck everything. All, you know, everything. My career, my life, my, my family will, will judge me. My uh, peers will, will you know, respect me less. You know, everything's going to be wrecked. And then, and then permanence, which is the most damaging one, which is it's going to feel like this forever. Mm. And, and... That response, again, this is where it's really, really important. That response is an entirely normal reaction to an abnormal situation. And you have to remember that most people's jobs do not involve the potential to cause harm to someone else. So the whole thing is very heightened. I think I think there's one one bit to add here is that um, it, it, because we've we've spoken about recognizing the, the imperfection and, and perfectionism, I think the thing to understand is that you can strive to be your best without measuring yourself against an impossible standard. Mm. So it's much better to be aware of being imperfect, imperfect because that allows 
you to ask for guidance. It allows that attitude of continually learning and it allows you to develop strategies for when things don't go to plan. A plan is one course of action. Strategies are a number of plans in in sequence which you can then deploy. Mm. And, and, And so... Again, you know, if you've got strategies, you're less likely to come up against this sort of hard and fast mistake. Something's going wrong. Mm-mm. You've got, okay, plan A didn't work. On to plan B. On to plan C. You, you know, you're, you're, you're prepared because it's about preparation for things going wrong. Mm. Again, you know, like, you know, if you're in this sort of mindset that everything's going to be great and you're not going to make any mistakes, well, you're not, you're not prepared for that time. But actually... You talk to you talk to Martin Bromley and, and you know airline pilots. Well, a lot of what they're doing is is mental rehearsal for the thing that's never going to happen. But the point is that they have mentally rehearsed for it. So if it does happen, they're prepared. And and that I think is something that medics, young medics, can really learn from. So thinking about that, I think one of the hardest bits is talking to a patient when you've made a mistake with their care. Um, and it's something that everybody's going to have to go through. You worry about the legalities of it. Will you get in trouble? Have you harmed the patient? Will this affect their relationship with healthcare? Will it affect your relationship with the patient? There's lots of things. Do you have any advice on that so that people can start thinking it through now, ahead of time? That, that relationship is not inevitably going to be destroyed. Okay, so the first thing to remember is that patients do, fortunately, generally recognise that you're not perfect. Um, And this is actually notwithstanding the fact that, uh, particularly during COVID, we've had a lot of really unhelpful dialogue about heroes, doctors being heroes and nurses being angels. And I'm afraid I've happen to perceive a certain degree of uh, implicit sexism, sexism within that stereotype. Um, but, you know, it, it, that's putting people on a pedestal from which they can only fall. And it is really, mm. really unhelpful. And it makes it much more difficult for clinicians um, if they perceive that that's how people are going to be thinking of them. Mm. Now, I uh, didn't have such a brilliant conversation with, with uh, my consultant. But I, I, you know, I know someone who had a really nasty thing go wrong. Um, and, you know, when the clinician came to apologise to her, she could see he was broken by it. And that had an enormous impact on her and how she responded because she understood. And she saw him as being human and she saw that humanity. So I think it's really important to start with that in mind. Um, In terms of what patients need, they need honesty Mm. and they need a genuine apology, not a non-apology, you know, not a, I'm sorry if you feel, right? Or I'm I'm sorry, sorry, but. (laughs) Yeah, right. Okay. Like, you know, I mean, I'm sorry if you feel it's just putting the blame on the patient because it's all their fault that they feel. What? You know, no way. Um, this is not okay. Right. So that's not an apology, a genuine apology and and honesty. Um, 
it's really fascinating to me that even when um, patients you know, are coming to terms with something having not gone to plan, um, and even if they may not quite understand what they are hearing, they have an uncanny ability to clock something that does not ring true. Mm. And a particular phrase that does not ring true will come to back to them later and they will be able to repeat it verbatim. Mm. And, and I can give as a personal example, my husband and I, actually, I, I went for the best part of 10 months without discussing what had happened because I was so much in shock and I was completely shut down. But when I eventually started to talk about it and I discussed it with my husband and we both identified the same phrase. So the same phrase had just flagged on both of us as, uh-uh, something's wrong. Mm. Okay. So that's why being honest is incredibly important because you're, because it, it, you know, you're not going to leave them wondering, hang on a second, something wasn't right. Um, and it's very important that patients understand, you know, what it was, if possible, how. They really, really want to know and to be able to believe that learning will occur and that you're going to do your absolute damnedest that the same thing's not going to happen again. They really need to know that. Like, that's, that's like the biggest impact, one of the biggest, you know, everyone I know who speaks around patient safety, that's, they all say the same thing. They just don't want the same thing to happen to someone else. So, um, you know, because it may not change their outcome. Nothing's going to change my outcome. I just don't want it to happen to other people. Mm. Um, so that, you know, being able to sense that something's going to improve in the future is really important to them. And, and then the final point is around continuity of care. So it is about identifying what do they need? What support do they need? Whose responsibility is to meet that need? And just to make sure it's going to happen. Try to remember that your the influence you have over somebody's care does not finish when you stop seeing them. Mm. Okay, because what goes in their notes, what goes in a letter to their GP, maybe, not always, but maybe, um, that goes with them. And that will influence the care they get going forward. And that's really, really important in terms mm. of allowing them to heal from whatever happened and trying to make the best possible outcome. And, and also don't forget that if you've done all of that, you can walk away knowing that regardless, you have done your absolute best to make the best possible outcome from that point where things did not go to plan. So it's, it, you know, and if you've got that, that's very powerful to you as a clinician, I believe. Aisha, do you think you're a perfectionist? Uh, maybe once upon a time. <laughs> <laughs> what changed? <laughs> Medicine broke me. No. <laughs> no, I guess you know it's that first mistake because you you know you come into f1 you've passed your exams you're on top of the world you're doing a dream job and then 
suddenly, I, I remember what happened. I prescribed fluids to the wrong person and it had been given. Um, sorry, I don't know if I'm allowed to say that. But um, um, And then, you know, when I realised it, you know, I had palpitations. I could feel palpitations. I was so stressed. I was like, oh, my God, what if I put this someone into heart failure? I could have killed them. And every single, like, bad outcome, like, horrendous outcome, um, you know, flashed in front of my eyes. And at that moment, mm. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, like this can't go on you know I need to get get out of this mentality that I'm always going to get it right because I'm not mm. um but actually that didn't come naturally um it came after talking to quite a lot of people and you know I actually spoke to one of my consultants and they were excellent and you know you you always know when you've got a good consultant when when you go to them like in need and you're like bawling your eyes out thinking that you've killed someone and you haven't um and they tell you all of the mistakes that they've made. And that's when you know you've got a good egg. <laughs> but um, my consultant was like, you know, some. they told me about the, the, you know, after they've made a mistake and they've been honest and open about it with the patient, the patient's actually come back to them and wanted them to look after them. Because yeah. actually, you know, that patient then knows that, you know, that that, that person is going to give them the best care because they're going to, you know, they're going to have their back. And if anything happens, they're going to fix it and they're going to communicate that with them. So, mm. you know, and I think that was a, a really important message for me to hear as an F1. <laughs> um, and I think that's what changed. I think, um, yeah, what you said there is is so true. I'm sure many people will um, relate to that a lot you know, you're a perfectionist until you make your first mistake and you realise that you can't, you can't really live like that. Um, and actually it's the learning from the mistake or what you framed as a mistake rather than the thing itself, maybe. There's an element of learning from mistakes and taking that forward to make sure that, you know, those same mistakes don't happen again and you improve. But then I think there are instances where, you know, there needs to be some blame because actually, like you said, there are uh, there are occasions where someone is slapdash and isn't mm. taking um, due care. Uh, yeah, so uh, Joe Wright in our last episode talked really nicely about that and she works in maternity services um, and she talks about intent and responsibility mm. um, in terms of, you know, sometimes people do, you know, as you say, need a talking to. But in terms of creating a blame culture mm. I think she has this really nice way of um kind of talking about it they there's an effect on the individual there's an effect on the organization and then there's a, the effect on the patient and I think mistakes are quite similar obviously they play into blame somewhat um but when she talks about the effect on the patient of when you know there is a blame culture it's very similar to when a doctor beats themselves up about a mistake you become very uh, paternalistic you over investigate you medicalize things a lot more um and i think that's one of the things we were talking about and actually getting away from that and not letting that affect your practice is only going to be done by reframing that mistake as inevitable part of the process you need to learn from it but actually if you hold it with you, it's only going to make you a worse doctor. Mm. Yeah, and I guess there's, I, I, I think there's like a patient element as well, because mm. I think that part of 
part of getting over a mistake is the feeling of forgiveness from the patient. Mm. Um, and you, I think collectively as the, as a patient body and the public, I think there is maybe a slight lack of awareness that mistakes do happen. Um, mm. and that, and improving that might actually help doctors and, and other healthcare professionals you know internally deal with the mistakes that they make and move on and actually go through that you know useful um useful stress as I like to call it sometimes you can have like mm. stress which is not useful but then you have stress which is useful um to get to and get through that reflective useful stressful process um I don't know if I'm making sense there yeah and I think you know that's what that's kind of what Susanna was saying about this impossible standard you know if we call people heroes and angels that's an impossible standard they can't reach and so you know I think actually allowing helping people realize that we're human we can't get it right all the time and focusing again and she says on that humanity which is you know, if you were walking down the street and you tripped someone up accidentally, you wouldn't, you know, immediately go and write a statement and um, be like, oh, I need to defend myself because they're going to come out and get me. You know, it's humanity. You, you help them up. You say, I'm really sorry that that happened. You know, can I get you anything? Can I take you anywhere? Is there anything I can do? You know, and I think, uh, you know, I'm cynical about it, but I think a lot of the the statement writing and the investigation process and the, the defence side of things um, can can often lead to to us not being open to learn from things and also take away the humanity. Oh, definitely. I mean, statement writing is probably the most stressful thing that I've ever done. And um, there's been many tears shed about writing statements and many sleepless nights. Um, and again, it's one of those things that you don't anticipate when you come in, when you decide that you want to be a doctor, is that it's just something that just happens and you get some random email from, you know, um, a faceless office person saying, um, this, this, this happened, it was bad, you need to write down every um, part of, of your memory <laughs> relating to it on a piece of paper. And, and in the middle of like a night shift and then they want it in 48 hours and it's really it's really stressful isn't it so this is probably um a really good time to move on to my interview with uh anthea martin who's from medical protection and i'm going to talk to her about the legalities of making a mistake um and how to talk to patients afterwards My name is Anthea Martin, Dr Anthea Martin. So I currently work with the Medical Protection Society. Um, I'm a medical legal consultant there in Team Leeds, so I lead a team of advisors um, at Medical Protection. I've done this job, or this type of job, for about 20 years, so quite a long time. Lots of experience. <laughs> Lots of experience, <laughs> hopefully. Um, but prior to that, I was a, a GP, so I worked in clinical okay. practice, trained as a GP and worked as a GP. I, when I was thinking about how to, what questions I wanted to ask you as part of this episode, it felt like such a huge topic because I feel like it's one thing that we never really cover at medical school. Um, so I thought probably the best way of doing this would be to sort of 
talk through a scenario. Let's say I'm on call um, and I miss a diagnosis, essentially, and they come back in a few days later and they're not very well. The first thing I think when I see that patient come back on the list is, oh my God, I've missed something huge and I need to go and speak to this patient about it. But the first thing I also don't want to do is have have to have that conversation because it's really difficult. Um, I mean, I suppose I've had this conversation with somebody before and I, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only person that's been told this by their parents, but I was always told when I first learned to drive, if you have an accident in the car, um, don't apologise if you if you have an accident because then you're admitting blame. And I think sometimes we sort of transfer that um, across to medicine. So we think, oh, if we're apologising for something or if we're saying, I'm sorry that that's happened, we're almost saying we made a mistake. Is there a problem with doing that legally? Will it make the patient more likely to litigate against you or will it make... Um, that more difficult to defend if it came to, you know, God forbid, an inquest if the family were involved? Um, I mean, absolutely, uh, Clara, the the idea that if you say sorry or apologise that you somehow admitting liability is, is quite a common misconception, really, actually, because... An apology of itself is not admi- not an admission of liability or wrongdoing. Um, so I think that's something that is important to get over. Um, the most important thing, I think, in a situation where something has gone wrong, and particularly where a patient has suffered as a result of it, is, as we said earlier, to be honest. Where it's appropriate to provide an apology, you absolutely should, or um, and be reassured that that is not an admission of, of liability. The other thing that you asked, Clara, is whether or not when you, you know, does it help if you do that or does it make the situation worse for the doctor if you mm. do that, if you like? And you're right, that's another concern or fear, quite legitimately, you know, because as you say, you're admitted to maybe doing something wrong or, or maybe not um, providing the best care that you would have wanted to. Um But in fact, if you can provide a heartfelt, genuine apology where something has gone wrong or where something could have been done differently Mm. and had a better outcome for the patient, then I think if you can do that, it can actually be more beneficial in the long term. Quite often in my career, I've seen situations where when doctors have not either apologised and come across as providing a genuine apology Mm. or not had the opportunity to apologise themselves, which sometimes happens, the complaints actually escalated. Mm. So I can give you an example if that that would help from a case case very many years ago that I dealt with and it concerned um, a doctor who, who treated a patient. The patient sadly died and the the family were unhappy with the care provided. Now, this case actually goes back very many years, so I do hope hope things have changed. But at that time, the family were really never offered an opportunity to talk to the doctor involved in the care of the patient. And the doctor himself never got a chance then to apologise to the family as he would have wanted. They were were almost kept apart. The complaints process was followed um, in terms of the hospital process, but it was followed very formally and and, and the the doctor never got a chance to to speak to the family directly and um, to offer them the apology that they wanted. 
as a result of that, they thought that the, the hospital was, were hiding things, that the doctor was hiding something. And in fact, this, the, the family then complained to the GMC about the doctor, they complained to the Ombudsman as well, and the whole thing escalated. It was resolved um, in the end, and after the resolution of it, um, the family approached us, or our legal, the legal representatives of the doctor, and said, um, you know, could, could we speak to the doctor? And we were a bit, you know, that's not usual situation, Clara. So we kind of said, well, well why? And um, we said, well, we should check with the doctor. You know, this process is now resolved. That wouldn't be normal. Mm. Um, anyway, the, the doctor agreed to speak to the family. And they said to the doctor, all we wanted was an apology. You know, mm. so I think that is a, you know, and I always remember that case because it really highlights the importance, you know, of a genuine apology where something's mm. going wrong and how it can prevent something, you know, from escalating. So, No, that's that's helpful because I, I don't, I think we're always taught that we should apologise, but always almost sort of mitigate the apology somehow. Mm. Like, I'm sorry... But and you've all almost started defending yourself before you've apologised. So I think knowing that you can kind of give a very genuine apology is is really helpful. Um, so in the um, kind of pretend scenario that I've come up with, um, let's say that the patient comes back in and I was wrong and I sent them home and they've come back in and they're now having to have an operation or have some extra treatment and I go and give a very genuine apology to the patient but they're still not happy um, and they then um, raise a concern which results in a, an incident investigation. The next step in that process as I understand it is everyone involved is asked to write a statement. Mm-hmm. Um, now statement writing I think is something most doctors are terrified of um, and most doctors again kind of expect that this is quite a defensive thing is there a situation where statement writing is the same as a reflection or is a reflection and a statement writing very are they two very different things when you're asked to provide a statement Clara for any any reason I always ask a doctor if they phone and say can I have some advice I've been asked to write a report or a statement I clarify who has asked them for the statement or the report because they're quite often used interchangeably those um, uh, those terms who's asked for it and why have they asked you for it and mm-hmm. the other important thing is when do they want it because quite often we get calls and the doctors say oh and they need it tomorrow <laughs> yeah <know>? so <laughs> so um so really, that, that, that's really important. And the reason I say that is because you've asked about reflection. It's sometimes appropriate to provide a reflection in a statement, um, and it's sometimes not. There are certain situations where a statement's prepared for purely a fact-finding process. A good example mm-hmm. of that, for example, would be the coroner. Right. So the, the coroner's often, um, a coroner's um, inquest, that usually happens obviously after a patient's died. It's not the same as your scenario, but when a patient's died, a coroner will approach um, usually the hospital, who will then pass it on to the doctors involved in the patient's care and ask them for statements about their involvement in the patient's care. The role of the coroner is really to ascertain certain facts about a patient's death. And so when we're advising doctors about um, statements for a coroner, we do 
we have a template that we can refer them to and it is very you know a very factual document you mm. know um setting out your involvement in the care of the patient the medication they were on their past medical history you know that kind of thing it's rarely appropriate to put any kind of reflection in that kind of statement mm. you may pass on your condolences in that kind of statement but you would rarely put inflection um an appropriate place for reflection would be if you're writing a report or a statement for um, your appraisal um, or in the rare occasions that doctors do have an investigation underway with the GMC, they may be asked for comments. We would never advise a doctor to do that without contacting their defence organisation first. Um, and quite often that is an appropriate place for reflection because the reason for that is that the GMC are looking at quite different things for a coroner. They're looking at about they're looking at whether or not a doctor is fit to practice mm. and whether or not they're currently fit to practice. So even if you have previously made an error, if you can show reflection and learning and you can reassure the regulator that that mistake wouldn't happen again, then that is going to help your case. So hopefully Clara that demonstrates that reflections are sometimes appropriate and sometimes not and it really depends on the purpose of that report or statement. In the same way as um, normal people not medical people will watch uh, (laughs) medical drama on TV doctors will watch legal dramas and crime thrillers and they become you know obsessed with the fact that that's the way that the legal system works so they I don't know, maybe I'm the only one that thinks this, but I think a lot of doctors will feel if they make a mistake, you know, they're going to end up, you know, with the shoelaces being taken out of the shoes and marched into a questioning room and asked really difficult questions and people are always going to be trying to catch them out because that's like the sort of media image of what the law and the legal system is like when you do something wrong, you know, you're a criminal. Um, So I wonder if maybe that's, the reason why a lot of doctors go in with not having trust in even in their defence organisation because they think someone's going to try and catch them out. Yeah. Do you experience that when you talk to people? <laughs> yes, yes, we do. And you're absolutely right, Clara. It's funny when you draw that analogy about watching legal programmes and medical programmes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we probably all sit and med- watch medical pro- programmes and think, that doesn't happen, that can't nope. happen. <laughs> and it, you're absolutely right. It's probably absolutely the same, same, absolutely the same um, with law and legal programmes. Um, I, and I, I've done a law degree and a medical degree, although I haven't worked as a lawyer, but I think having done the law degree, I have a good understanding of law and the process. Mm. And sometimes to try and demystify it, it's worth thinking of, of law and legal things as as processes. They're mm. just something that, that people have to do. So statements and reports, for example, are just fact-finding. They're just about getting information to try and decide what needs to happen next or what decision needs to, you know needs to be made you know that kind of thing um and again i think if we're helping a doctor with a gmc investigation or with a claim it is just about helping them understand that process um and trying to make it less scary for them as i said earlier if a doctor is investigated by the gmc 
the chances of them ending up at a hearing are, are pretty slim. The chances of them being erased are pretty slim. But even if we say that, they still sometimes, you know, don't believe it and don't quite put the trust in you because that's your biggest fear, isn't it? Losing your registration because you lose your, your livelihood. So um, I think as far as, as, you know, as far as my job, whether it's on the phone to someone who's been asked to, to give a statement or whether it's helping someone with a, a GMT case, it is just trying to, to demystify that and say, look, this is a process. This is what will happen now. This is why we're asking you to do this. This is what we need from you to best help you. Um, and kind of just just doing it, it that way. Mm. Um, and I think that's the, the best we can really do. If you take clinical negligence claims, for example, Lawyers would just see that as being about about money. It's about getting mm. money for the patient who has suffered harm. And actually, that is exactly all it's about, really. But if you're the doctor who's been asked to provide a report or a statement about your care of the patient and you know the care isn't as good as it should have been, then you feel terrible and you're worried about your reputation and you're worried about your career. But in fact, all the lawyers want to know is, was, did you do something wrong if you did? Can we have some money, please? So, you know, it's just those two different sides of the same thing, really. Um, and I think if you can then demystify it for the doctor, it sometimes can help. And it can help them to be a bit more relaxed about providing information that either we need or the NHS team needs to try and help resolve, mm. resolve the matter. Have you ever had to go to an inquest, Aisha? No, I haven't. But I've written a lot of statements. <laughs> Have you? Yeah, I've written some statements for um, bad outcomes. Um, and I've mm. written some statements for complaints. Um, but I haven't, luckily, I haven't been, haven't been to an inquest just yet. I haven't been to an inquest, but a... Um close colleague of mine got called to inquest and I think what Anthea said there about um, helping people understand the process and that it is just a process um, and that it's not trying to criminalise activity <laughs> um, I think was really helpful um, to, to my friend who went through it um, and it was helpful for me to hear that as somebody who's never had to go to an inquest um, because I think that whole demystifying process um, is good when actually, like, I don't really know anything. Uh, well, prior to this experience that my friend had, I didn't know anything about going to inquest or what it involved or coroner's court or anything like that. So I'm always interested how much other people know or whether it's just me that didn't know about this. Mm. I was interested in what um, Anthea was saying about saying sorry as well. Um, mm. Just because my experience has again been similar to what I think most people, what Anthony was talking about, that um, often trusts or the lawyers um, kind of want to separate the doctor from the patient. And it's really hard mm. to say sorry. Like logistically, just because the patient might have gone home or you might be on another shift or you might have moved to another hospital or you might not find out until, you know, weeks or months later. Um so I think that there is a challenge, not only in the, oh God, I really don't want to have this conversation, but it's absolutely the right thing to do, but also the logistical side of things. Yeah, definitely. And I've certainly been in a situation where 
um, you know, a patient had a bad outcome and this was a patient that I developed a really good relationship with, I think, at mm. least. Um, and all I wanted to do was to, to say sorry to her, but it was just impossible because she wasn't in hospital. I couldn't contact her. Mm. Um, and actually, I think that it affected me because I, I felt like I, I should be able to do that. And I'm sure it probably affected her because I was the doctor that she'd interacted with um, quite a lot. Do you, compared to other situations where you've been able to speak to a patient, do you think that 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 made it more difficult not being able to to speak to her after after the event? Oh, absolutely. Definitely, definitely. Because it was kind of coming back to that forgiveness point that I was talking about earlier. Like in order for me to move on, I needed to feel that I had been forgiven or even if I hadn't Mm. been forgiven to know that I'd done my absolute best to, um, to try and seek that forgiveness from her and, Mm. and, and reassure her that I, you know, I, I have learned from this and I, you know, it was anything that I'd done hadn't, been intentional and I wanted the best outcome and unfortunately I couldn't I you know it was out of my hands at that point um and have you had situations where um you've had positive experiences when you've um spoken to patients oh yeah definitely um so I've had a situation where there was a complication um in a procedure and I was absolutely distraught afterwards I, I just thought I was the worst doctor imaginable um and how could i possibly have done this and actually when i spoke to the patient she was immensely grateful that i'd come to speak to her to tell her what happened and she was completely understanding and said look that's the most important thing is that it's all sorted now and you did your your best and and thank you for coming to see me and speak to me and it was just like you know weight had been lifted off my shoulders it was possibly one of you know one of the best things that could have happened to me at that moment because mm-hmm. I think that could have you know that was probably a moment where I I was thinking about is this the right specialty for me um and that conversation I had kept me in the specialty gosh that's huge isn't mm. it like you know from a from a personal point of view as well as for that patient that's you know you were at the stage where you thought, oh, I'm not sure if this is the right career to carry on and just just an apology. I say just an apology. It's it's a big thing. But, you know, um, something as simple as an apology, mm. um, that's amazing. Like what, what a big, big difference that makes. Yeah, definitely. That seems like a good note to end on. Thank you so much to our guests today, Susanna Stamford and Anthea Martin. The video that Susanna mentioned in her interview is linked in our show notes and I would really advise going on and having a watch. Thank you so much to my co-host Aisha Ashmore. Uh, Thank you Aisha for being open and honest as always. And I hope you have a a good evening roller skating and aren't trying to be too perfectionist. (laughs) Thanks for having me Clara. Yes and hopefully I won't take out you know the entire of the East Midlands Ops and Dine cohort with roller skating injuries. Thank you for listening. I'm Clara Monroe and this is Doctor Informed. <laughs>